Are you using IFR? Philips IFR is the gold standard of resting indices and is supported by guidelines and clinical outcome data from over 4,500 patients. Including IFR co-registration in your lab will help you decide not just whether to treat, but where to treat. Learn more at philips.com backslash IFR. You're listening to Heart Sounds, TCTMD's award-winning podcast hosted by Shelley Wood. Hello and welcome to the Heart Sounds podcast for June 2019. This is the podcast where I play you sound bites from some of the interviews that TCTMD reporters conducted to pull together the news for TCTMD this month. And there goes June! I can't believe the longest day of the year has already come and gone. I myself was on the road again in June, attending the TVT meeting in Chicago, joined by Michael Reardon. This month also saw us wrapping up some of our take-home stories from the meeting Palooza of May, plus keeping up on the regular news cycle. Let's start by taking a listen to a few topics that came up at TVT. For those of you who attend the TVT conference, you'll know it's more of a meeting for networking, watching live cases, seeing some new technology in structural heart disease, and reviewing hot topics. It is less of a meeting for new study results, which makes it somewhat tougher from a news perspective. Instead of writing up big, late-breaking trials, Mike and I end up listening in for bigger themes and questions being raised in this space, and trying to pull together stories that capture the flavor of those discussions. This year at TVT, Mike wrote a story based on presentations and conversations dealing with the role of surgical risk in deciding on a patient's suitability for TAVR. Not so many years ago, STS scores and other tools for gauging surgical risk were the key factors considered by the heart team in deciding whether a patient should be treated surgically or via a transcatheter approach. Those days are over, according to a range of speakers at TVT. Most, as Mike noted in his story, believe that surgical risk still matters and should be a component of the heart team's discussion. But it certainly shouldn't be the number one consideration. Here's cardiothoracic surgeon Michael Reardon of Houston Methodist DeBakey Heart and Vascular Center in Texas. He's walking his TVT audience through the various factors that the heart team should now consider, with this particular sound clip focusing on morbidity factors. Have a listen. Risk is defined by morbidity favors TAVR across the risk spectrum except pacemakers for self-expanding valve and hemodynamics for balloon expanded and low risk. Doctors are going to make their decision about valves on a multiplicity of things, and these are just two of the things that are going to find their way in there. But risk is no longer, in my estimate as a surgeon, a decision-making factor. So does it really matter? Well, low risk is no longer a valid reason to avoid TAVR. High risk remains a valid reason to avoid surgery. And I think the main things that we're going to be starting to look at is going to be age and durability. And as those answers come out, that's going to inform us further about where we need to go. Several sessions at TVT this year invited speakers to tell the audience three new things they hadn't necessarily considered about an otherwise familiar topic. I covered one of these sessions late in the afternoon, which meant my brain was in danger of packing it in for the day. Happily for me, I was jolted awake by Matthew Brennan of Duke University in Durham. He opened his talk by noting that most of the presentations at TVT addressed incremental benefits. Changes in techniques or devices that might trim back the risk of stroke or other endpoints by 1-2% to at most. What he wanted to tell us about would affect patients by reducing mortality on a population level by as much as 70%. That got my attention. 
Brennan then went on to make the case that vast numbers of patients with severe symptomatic aortic stenosis never get treatment, even those who are supposedly being followed by cardiologists. There are multiple reasons why this may happen. The murmur may be missed, the echo misinterpreted, the symptoms misappropriated, the referral delayed, uh, the patients misinformed, and ultimately treatments delayed and lives are lost, and clearing those hazards is going to save lives. Brennan argued persuasively that subjective symptoms need to be replaced by objective treatment criteria in order to guide timely care. He also wants better tools for educating both physicians and patients about treatment options and timelines. Most important, Brennan wants to see better systematic follow-up, ideally automated, such that patients screened much earlier for AS get subsequent reminders that they have a progressive disease and need to head back for a new echo within a matter of years. Is this practical? Brennan was asked by the panel at TVT. He says yes. In our systems, in our hospital systems, we have EHRs that could do this. We should be tracking these patients. It's a terminal illness. It's a terminal illness, as you guys know, and it's a very treatable illness. So why aren't we doing it? Would we do this with cancer, for example? No. Let's turn now to some highlights we picked out of the medical literature this month, starting with Caitlin Cox. If you're a regular listener, you'll have heard Caitlin last month when she filled in for me as your Heart Sounds host. She told you about her investigative feature story about some of the unintended consequences of shifting endovascular procedures from hospitals to outpatient offices. I have the sense a lot of people skipped past this headline, telling themselves, well, I don't do those procedures. I gotta tell you, this story is about something much bigger than peripheral vascular disease and I believe is important reading for anyone who cares about procedure, oversight, and patient safety. If you haven't already done so, go seek out Caitlin's story. We called it Peripheral Vision, as office-based practices proliferate. Who's watching out for patients? That all said, Caitlin's reporting this month dipped back into related territory with her coverage of a paper looking at the risks of periprocedural bleeding among patients undergoing lower-extremity peripheral vascular interventions. As Caitlin noted in her story, this has become a field of rapid growth, but very little is known about real-world practice patterns and outcomes. To tease out this information, researchers led by senior author Adam Salisbury of St. Luke's Mid-America Heart Institute in Kansas City crunched numbers from the NCDR PVI registry, looking at all procedures done at 76 U.S. hospitals over a three-year period. They found 744 major bleeds among the more than 18,000 procedures, a rate of roughly 4%. 58% of the time those bleeds occurred at the access site, with retroperitoneal bleeds being the second most common. Importantly, in-hospital mortality was significantly higher among patients who had major bleeds, and highest, not surprisingly, among those with overt bleeding or bleeds requiring blood transfusions. Caitlin asked for perspective from Anesh Patel of Duke University, who had three main takeaways. Here's part of their conversation. It's good to see national-level data on peripheral vascular interventions. Right? That's my first message, which is, I guess, validating NCDR and PVI and saying that's a good thing for us to do. The second is that a major bleeding rate of 4% is fairly substantial given how significant the bleeding definition was or how, what I'll say, stringent it was with a 3-gram mm. hemoglobin drop and a, or, or a need for transfusion. Okay. That sounds like a pretty significant bleed and might miss other reasonable bleeds that might affect outcomes such as significant femoral hematomas or other things that might not need it. 
And then I think it just speaks to how nascent the field is yet, that we are just now starting to talk about the major bleed rates, the variability in it, and we need to start thinking about modifiable factors, which include probably other access points, other technologies, other ways to think about taking care of these patients. And I know there's a push to try to do some of them from radial access points or other access points. There's a push to better understand how we take care of them in the outpatient holding areas, outpatient labs, and even the anticoagulation strategies are less well studied in this population, if you will. It seems like they're all over the map in terms of what people's practices are, and everybody has their own way of doing it. Yeah, so unfortunately, yeah, unfortunately, peripheral vascular disease still remains sort of the Wild West with a lot of individual practice not driven by evidence. As you might recall, TCTMD's Todd Neal covered the Heart Rhythm Society meeting for us last month. He came home with some ideas that he felt needed to be fleshed out in a bit more depth than the kind of turned-around-on-a-dime reporting we do on-site. One of these topics turned into a feature story that has just gone live on TCTMD, looking at a unique approach to lowering the risk of stroke in the setting of atrial fibrillation. For decades, stroke prevention in patients with AFib has largely consisted of chronic, lifelong oral anticoagulation. But some researchers and clinicians have posed this question. What if there was a way to enjoy the benefits of anticoagulation while drastically minimizing the risks of a major bleed? Already, in select patients, physicians have been using a strategy that involves using some type of continuous monitoring, either through an implantable or wearable device, to look for episodes of AFib. They then have patients take their oral anticoagulation for a limited period of time only. They then have patients take their oral anticoagulation for a limited period of time only after such episodes are found. This approach has been called intermittent, on-demand, or pill-in-the-pocket anticoagulation. The idea is that AFib-related strokes will be prevented while only exposing the patient to the bleeding risks for as short a period as possible. Todd spoke to a wide range of experts for his feature, and I will hope you'll check out the full story. For now, here's Rod Passman of Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine in Chicago, giving Todd his take on the -the pill-in-the-pocket approach. I think that this uh, represents a potential paradigm shift. And, you know, if we're going to change the practice of medicine, you know, we need the highest levels of of evidence to support that this is reasonable. My point is, is the way we practice this aspect of AFib management is stupid. We know that only about half the patients who should be receiving an anticoagulant are actually prescribed one. And when we do prescribe it, probably only half take it at the end of a year or two. So to continue to think that, 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 that this is something that patients want and can be compliant with, I think is really foolish. So, I, you know, my, my opinion is that we need to leverage these advances in pharmacology and technology to really uh, fundamentally ask whether we've been treating this disease correctly. Let's wrap up this month's podcast with a topic that has been the number one newsmaker every month for the entire year to date. I'm speaking, of course, about the controversy over paclitaxel-based balloons and stents, and the mortality signal seen with these devices among patients with femoropopliteal artery disease. We have seen months of presentations from academics and industry scientists delivered at meetings convened to tackle the questions raised in the now-famous Katsanos meta-analysis. No one, including the FDA's own reviewers, have been able to explain the observed association between the devices and long-term mortality risk. 
This month, Laura McEwen, who has done all of our coverage on this topic to date, tuned in to the two-day meeting of the FDA's Circulatory System Devices Advisory Panel, tasked with reviewing the existing data from randomized controlled trials and registries. I can only guess at the number of strong cups of tea consumed by Laura in order to get through this marathon two-day session, let alone the experts muddling through all of the conflicting data. Laura recapped the first day of discussions, which one participant likened to wandering in a, quote, forest of dueling data, but it was day two where we thought we might get some drama, including some clues as to what next steps the FDA might take. You'll have to read Laura's full coverage to get all the nuance here, but what's clear is that this much-anticipated FDA session ended not with a bang, but a whimper. Laura caught up with Richard Lang of Texas Tech University in El Paso, who chaired the panel meeting. She put the question to him, where on earth does the FDA go from here? I think they're going to ask for some additional studies or continuation of the uh, ongoing studies. As, as the panel cited, there's a signal that there may be uh, increased mortality associated with the use of these devices. And again, it's a signal based upon inconclusive data. So the, the FDA is going to want to develop more conclusive data. I think they're going to do that by cleaning up the existing data. That is, people are lost to follow up in getting their data. I think they're going to want the existing studies, the ongoing studies now, to collect the appropriate data for the appropriate amount of time. That includes uh, studies here, and as we talked about during the panel, the Swedish study, which has a large number of patients. And then I think they need to do a statistical analysis to see whether there need to be additional patients enrolled to provide the power to make a conclusion of whether or not the devices are safe or whether, in fact, there is increased mortality. So I think it's going to be a totality of that. And, and what that's going to require is that the industry collaborates both with the FDA, but more importantly, works with each other, because no single sponsor has enough of the data, or a large enough study to answer the question. I'm going to leave it there for this month's edition of Heart Sounds. Coming up next month, we'll have Yael Maxwell reporting once again from the SCCT meeting in Washington, D.C., taking place July 11th to 14th. If you're a close reader of TCTMD, you'll have noticed a new name in the mix. Marcus Banks is our Jason Kahn Fellow in Medical Journalism this summer, and he's quickly found his feet reporting on cardiovascular news for TCTMD. Marcus is currently a master's student in New York University's Science, Health, and Environmental Reporting program, and will be with us for two months this summer. You'll be hearing more from Marcus in the coming weeks. I've got two very important housekeeping notes for you. Number one, our brand spanking new TCTMD app has launched. This was a labor of love for our creative and digital teams, and we are committed to continuing to improve and expand on its capabilities. But if you haven't already done so, go to the App Store and download our sparkling new app. Or if you already have it, download the update. The new app is smart, it's attractive, contains a vast variety of different types of content that's easy to find. Honestly, apart from not having a sense of humor, this app is like the best blind date you've never had. Number two, our 2019 TCTMD user survey is live. This is a matter close to my heart because I literally lie awake nights worrying and wondering if TCTMD is truly serving the needs of its members. Sad but true. If you like what we're doing, I need you to tell us. If you don't, you need to tell us twice. 
My goal is to make TCTMD your number one resource for cardiology news and views, and we simply cannot improve what we're doing unless you tell us what's working and what's not. There is a box in the upper right-hand corner of tctmd.com that will take you to our quick survey, and I hope you'll do that ASAP. It's not going to be up there much longer, but we want your voice to be counted. Of course, you can always reach out to me directly. I am ShellyWood2 on Twitter and SWood at tctmd.com by email. You can find the entire TCTMD news team via our bios on the website. If you have got a news tip or a meeting presentation or paper or a bee in your bonnet, you need to reach out and let us know. Thanks for tuning in to Heart Sounds. See you back here next month.